welcome back to The Street Theologian and today we'll be talking about uh, continuing with a series of podcasts on sacred scripture. Today we'll be talking about the writings of St. John, which is apt because today, the 27th of December, the Catholic Church celebrates the feast of St. John the Evangelist, who is thought to be the youngest disciple of Christ um, and the one who probably was closest to him and he was the one who stood by him in his last moments on the cross with, with the mother of Christ when all of the other disciples had fled. Um, when you talk about the writings of St. John, we refer, probably the first thing that comes to your mind would be the Gospel of John, which as we said is um, quite different from what you call the Synoptic Gospels, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's not just the Gospel of John, there are also three letters that are attributed to him. And the book of the Apocalypse, the last book of the Bible, is also attributed to an author named John. So let's start with um, the Gospel of John. What are some of its literary characteristics and its doctrinal content? Um, according to Eusebius, um, a church historian who wrote an entire ecclesiastical history, the Gospel of St. John is the last Gospel written which was probably written around uh, 90 AD. And in, in, in claiming this, Eusebius cites the testimony of Clement of Alexandria, who speaks of a tradition that John wrote his gospel after the other evangelists had written theirs. And this would probably explain why there are many details in the Gospel of St. John that are not in the other synoptic gospels that there are details in the Synoptic Gospels that were not included in the Gospel of John. Probably because if you're the last one to write about the Gospel, maybe your goal is not so much to repeat what has already been said, but to enrich and to add to what has already been said. Um, so as we said, the authorship of the Gospel is believed to be St. John the Apostle, one of the Twelve Apostles of Christ, and the disciple whom Jesus loved as... Um, as indicated in chapter 21 of St. John's Gospel. Um, well, aside from Eusebius and aside from Clement of Alexandria, other church fathers, such as St. Irenaeus, also attribute the Gospel of St. John to the Apostle John. So there are 21 chapters in the Gospel. There's a prologue in, the, in chapter 1, um, which talks about the Logos, or the Word of God, who became man. And it's a very beautiful prologue because um, the style reminds you of the style of Genesis when in the Old Testament we find the narrative of the creation of the world, etc. Um, in, in the beginning, um, God created the world, but in the prologue of St. John, he talks about the same principle, but putting at its center the figure of Christ, the Word made flesh. So it sort of completes the narrative of Genesis. Um, in Genesis, we see creation, and in the Gospel of St. John, we see creation's highest point, which is the Son of God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And um, after the first chapter, um, chapters 2 to 12, is often referred to as the Book of Signs because... Um, these chapters narrate the work and miracles of Christ. And it's called the Book of Signs because the author of the Gospel explicitly points to the miracles worked by Christ as signs of His divinity. 
In fact, he's quite explicit about it. He talks about, oh, this is the first sign, and this is the second sign, the third sign. Um, and after the 12th chapter, um, chapters 13 to 20, the third part of the book, um, is a narrative of the passion and resurrection of Christ. It's usually referred to as the Book of Glory because the author constantly refers to the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ as his glory. Um, the word for glory in Greek, doxa, appears several times in this in the third part of of this book um, so we have these three divisions the prologue chapter one the book of signs chapters 2 to 12 the book of glory chapters 13 to 20 and the last chapter the 21st chapter narrates the appearance of the resurrected Christ in the sea of Tiberias um, we see here the narrative of how the disciples had gone back to their old work of fishing and then one day from from the sea from afar they see christ on the shore calling them back um sort of reminds you of um the calling of the apostles when they were also in the same context when christ first called them and after they thought that everything was was done and that um that they've lost they thought that they've lost suddenly christ calls them again when when they had gone back to, to their old ways. Um, it is thought that um, the last chapter was not written directly by John, but by a disciple of his. And people think this because of its linguistic difference with the rest of the work. Um, the language and the style is, is very different from the other chapters. And also because the 20th chapter already contains a, conclude, a concluding verse. Um, in the last verse of chapter 20, we read, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that in believing, you may have life in His name. So it sounds like a real ending. But then all of a sudden in chapter 21, we see this other scene when Christ has already resurrected and He calls His disciples back again. Um, and so there's reason to believe that the 21st chapter had had been added by, by a, dis- a disciple of John. Um... One of the literary characteristics of St. John's Gospel is what we call anagnorisis, which is typical of Greek theater. For instance, we see this in um, Oedipus Rex uh, of Sophocles. And what is anagnorisis? Well, it's a type of plot in which the main character's true identity is gradually revealed in the story until its full recognition in the end. And this full recognition constitutes the resolution of the story. Um, in the case of St. John's Gospel, the true divinity of Christ, his, his identity as a divine person, as a son of God, is revealed gradually through the signs in the first part of the Gospel. And it reaches its full unfolding in his manifestation as the Messiah, in his passion, death, and resurrection. So anagnorisis is like this process of a passage from um, not knowing to knowing not knowing Christ and then slowly beginning to know Him. Mm. So let me talk about the doctrinal content of the Gospel of St. John. It's often said that the Gospel of St. John is the most theological gospel because um, the events are narrated not so much for the sake of narrating them, but in order to to communicate a very specific theological message. Um, And one of the important themes of this gospel is the Blessed Trinity. We see this, first of all, in the prologue, which begins by speaking of the Word of God that was with God from the beginning and who became flesh. And in many 
instances in the Gospel of St. John, Jesus directly says that the Father and I are one, chapter 10. And he also says that he who knows him, he who knows Christ, knows the Father. And also the Holy Spirit is described as a distinct person through whom one must be baptized in order to enter the kingdom of God. We find this in his conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. And he also describes the Spirit as one who will be given when Jesus had already been glorified. Um, And here also we see explicitly said that the Holy Spirit is someone who proceeds from the Father and the Son. We see this in chapters 14 and 16. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is described as a counselor who will make his home in those who believe in Christ. And in chapter 20, in the last chapter of the Book of Glory, after his resurrection, Jesus told the apostles to receive the Holy Spirit in order to be able to forgive sins. So in the in the Gospel of John, we see specific references to the different persons of the Trinity. And also we see specific um, references to the unity of these three persons. And another important concept that's often highlighted in the Gospel of John is a concept of faith. Um, in fact, um, the purpose of the Gospel, as St. John says himself in chapter 20, is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in Him. So faith and life is faith and life are concepts that are put together. Like someone, The person who believes is someone who is alive. Um, that you have life in you if you believe in Christ. And by life, um, obviously St. John is referring mainly to eternal life. Eternal life is something that one achieves primarily through faith in Jesus. And of course, um, St. John is also referred to as the Apostle of Love. And love is a very important theme of this Gospel. And the clearest manifestation of God's love is the giving of His only begotten Son in order to save mankind. Like for St. John, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son in order to redeem us. Um, And love is associated with the will of the Father. That God's will is a constant act of loving. And this love of God for the second person, this love of the Father for the Son, is extended towards entire mankind. In chapter 15, Christ says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And it's very important to to highlight this. This act of supreme love is shown in laying down one's life for the person's love. Um, Also in various instances, Christ exhorts his followers to love one another. Something that um, is highlighted among Christians. You have to love one another as I have loved you. Um, And Christ gives an example of what it means to love one another which is to serve, to humble oneself for the other person. And we see this in the episode of um, chapter 13 in the Last Supper, when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Washing someone's feet is the job of the lowest among the hierarchy of slaves. And Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God made man, decided to lower himself, to, to liken himself to the lowest among the slaves and washing the feet of his disciples. And this is the only way that... The, um, we can have a part in him. In fact, in this scene, Peter at first resisted, like, no way are you going to wash my feet since you're you're, you're you're my master. But Christ was like, um, if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part in me. So it's like saying that um, we have to allow ourselves to be loved by God in this way, to accept this love that God is giving us in order to be able to enter into that same love between the Son and the Father. So... 
yeah, love is a very important theme. And um, another idea that's highlighted in the Gospel of St. John are the sacraments. Um, the notion of a visible dimension through which we can arrive at the invisible God. This is something that's very prominent in the Gospel of St. John. Um, sacraments, um, hopefully we can dedicate some other episodes on the sacraments. But sacraments are basically visible signs of God's grace. Um, signs that make present God's grace in, in reality, in the person who receives the sacrament. And, and the divinity of Christ is shown through seven signs or miracles in the Gospel of St. John, just like the seven sacraments that we have in the Catholic Church. And certain sacraments like baptism, the Eucharist, and penance are referred to explicitly in the Gospel. You already mentioned the conversation of Christ with Nicodemus in chapter 3 where he says that baptism is necessary in order to come to the kingdom of God, in order to enter the kingdom of God. And we also see this in Christ's recognition of the baptism of John the Baptist in the River Jordan. And as regards the Eucharist, although it's true that St. John's Gospel does not include a narrative of the institution of the Eucharist, unlike in the Synoptics, um, but he does have an entire discourse on the bread of life in chapter 6 in which he explicitly says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So this is a very, very explicit um, statement from on the part of Christ saying that... Um, the Eucharist really is my body and my blood. And I'm not joking, it's not just symbolic, it's, it's real. And as regards the sacrament of penance, we also see this in Christ's words to his apostles after his resurrection in chapter 20. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. These are some of the important themes in the Gospel of St. John. And of course, we can't miss the fact that... Um, St. John also highlights the important role of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Although we can't say that she was very actively present in the entire Gospel, she appears in two key moments in the Gospel. And these are in chapters 2 and 19. Chapter 2, which is the beginning of the public life of Christ, in the wedding feast at Cana, when Christ worked his first miracle through her intercession. And another chapter and the other chapter the other moment in which she appears is chapter 19 when she stands at the foot of the cross when her son was dying when everyone else had left and when Christ had already completed his redemptive mission so in in this latter scene Christ entrusts John to his mother and fathers of the church have traditionally interpreted this as our lord designating his mother as the mother of all believers and another important detail in these two moments in the wedding of Cana and at the foot of the cross, which I think we mentioned in um, the podcast on the Blessed Virgin Mary, is that in both scenes, um, Christ calls his mother woman. In the wedding feast of Cana, he calls her woman, it's not yet my time. When his mom asked him to do something because they were running out of wine and she didn't want the, the newlyweds to be embarrassed to be humiliated for having run out of wine and she asked her son to do something and he said, woman, it's not yet my time. But he ended up working the miracle anyway, um, transforming water into wine. Um, and we see here the important role of the Blessed Virgin Mary in interceding for us, interceding for 
for people who are in need. Sometimes she does favors for us that we don't even realize. I'm sure the newlyweds in the wedding feast at Cana um, never realized that they were running out of wine and that someone, this um, lady who was always in the background, worked things out perfectly well so that they could have more wine. Probably they didn't realize. And the same is true with us. Our lady works miracles for us. We might call it that. She intercedes for us in a very special way in moments when we need it most, even when we don't realize how how much favor she's doing for us. And I guess, well, that's how most mothers work. Um, they don't mind not being in the limelight. What's important for them is to um, to help the ones they love. But anyway, what was I saying? That, um, an important detail in these two scenes in the wedding feast at Cana and at the foot of the cross is that Christ calls his mom woman. And it's as if... Um, He's making a reference to to Eve, who was like the first woman, and then calling his mother woman. It's like he's um, placing her as a new Eve, um, and, and as the person who incarnates um, femininity, well, humanity, if you might even call it that, um, transcends all other women. So these are some of the important themes in the Gospel of St. John. Um, now I'd like to talk a bit about St. John's Gospel in relation to the Synoptic Gospels. We said that uh, it's quite different. For instance, it doesn't have that narrative of the, the institution of the Eucharist, although it has like a different discourse on the bread of life. Um, but we could say that it has a very different approach from the Synoptic Gospels. For instance, in the Gospel of John, the ministry of Christ is centered in Judea, whereas in the Synoptic Gospels, it's centered in Galilee. And also, in the Gospel of John, he recounts three different Passovers, while in the Synoptics, we only see one Passover, that same Passover in which Jesus is crucified. And in the Gospel of John, he doesn't, aside from not mentioning the institution of the Holy Eucharist in the Last Supper, he also doesn't mention the scene of the Transfiguration, in which um, Jesus goes up to a mountain and converses with his Father. And of the 29 miracles found in the synoptics, John only cites two, and he also adds five more. <laughs> and he also does not focus so much on the concept of the kingdom of God, which we see so frequently in the synoptic gospels. Um, well, as we said earlier, since the gospel of St. John was the last one to have been written, some scholars say that John wrote his gospel in order to complete what was already known by the faithful from the synoptics. And his gospel does not contradict the synoptics, but rather gives it more detail based on what he has seen and heard. And his aim is to give testimony or bear witness to what he has himself experienced. And this is why among all the gospels, it is John's gospel which contains a very personal touch. Another unusual feature of John's gospel is that, as we said earlier, it's a very spiritual gospel. It has a lot of theological symbolisms. Um, in fact, St. Clement of Alexandria really refers to it in an explicit way as a spiritual gospel. And the events that are narrated in that gospel have the aim of going deeper into the spiritual meaning of Jesus' words and actions. So that's it for the Gospel of St. John. Um, now I'd like to talk briefly about the letters of St. John. So there are three that are attributed to John. and However, only the first letter is believed to be really John's because um, it has linguistic similarities with the Gospel of John. And the other two letters 
have been thought to have been written by a disciple of John, whom Papias refers to as John the Presbyter, John the Priest. The second and third letters are written by the elder. So, the first letter of John uses a similar language as the gospel. For instance, the notion of the word as life was existed from the beginning. And it's thought that it may have been a homily or a letter since it has features of both genres. Its content can be summarized in the following ideas. First, um, that God is life and light. Because God has promised us eternal life and we possess His eternal life when we abide in the light of God, when we have faith. Um, he makes a lot of um, symbolism. He plays a lot with the symbolisms of light and darkness. And so Christians must remain faithful to the doctrine of Christ and be aware of false prophets. False prophets are often interpreted as... Um, well, those who claim that Christ isn't really God, like we are entering in the first century, one of the important heresies was Gnosticism, um, which belittled in the flesh and highlighted the spirit. And it's thought that when St. John is talking about false prophets, he's talking about like all of these heresies that were beginning to exist at that time. Another important theme in the first letter of John is the theme of divine filiation, following the footsteps of Christ. For him, the love of the Father has made us into sons of God, just like Christ. And therefore, as Christians, we need to walk in the light and bear witness to God through an upright life, following the commandments of God. And finally, a third idea is God is love. It's something very basic, but it's something which is key, which is at the center of, um, of Christian life. And the path of the Christian is the path of love. It's not just um, when we talk about following the commandments of God, it's not just following for the sake of following, but it's following the will of God because of love. And that the will of God is not just an arbitrary will. It's a will that is constantly loving. And so one's love for God is at the foundation of living a good life. And it's at the foundation of being able to love one's neighbor. On the the other hand, the second letter of John consists in only one section, which speaks about being vigilant in the truth and avoiding error. It also warns more specifically against the Antichrist, which some interpret as a reference to the heretical doctrines that were beginning to spread towards the second century. And uh, the third letter also just has one section. Um, Among the letters of John, this third letter is the only one that's thought to be a real letter. It's not a homily or it's not, um, yeah, it's a, it's a letter. And it gives an idea of the condition of the first Christian communities because the letter um, names certain specific persons who were real people of authority in the early church, such as Gaius, Diotrephes, Demetrius. And in this letter, the author encourages continuous fidelity to the truth in order to give testimony. And um, finally, I'd like to talk about the last book of the Bible, which is also attributed to John, which is the book of the Apocalypse. Um, I'll talk a bit about its literary genre and the specific theological themes in this last book. Um, It's one of the, what we call, the uterocanonical books. That is, um, at some point, it was not accepted by all the church communities, particularly in the East, because some of the heretical sects were using parts of the text to support their own teaching because the genre is very figurative the language is very figurative the genre is very literary 
it was quite easy for some heretical groups to twist the words in order to fit their own interpretation of it. And this is the reason why not all of the Christian communities um, accepted it. And some of the church fathers, particularly St. Justin, refers to the author of the book as John, one of the apostles. And this is the reason why it's part of the... Um, the corpus of the meaning the, the, the writings of St. John and other theologians early theologians who accepted the text as belonging to St. John or Origen, Papias of Hierapolis and even St. Irenaeus mm. the magisterium has confirmed the canonicity of the apocalypse in the council of Hippo in 393 AD and reaffirmed this in the councils of Carthage and in the council of Toledo and again reconfirmed in the councils of Florence and Trent which um, established the canon of the Bible and the readership of the book is directed to the seven churches that are in Asia which are Ephesus, Myrna, Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea and Scholars think, though, that the number seven is symbolic and that, in fact, the book is directed to the whole church. Because I don't know if you've mentioned this in some, in some previous podcasts, but in Jewish tradition, the number seven is like a number of um, magnanimity. And so when the Apocalypse speaks about the seven churches, it must have been referring to all of the Christian communities. And an important aspect of apocalyptic literature is symbolism. And... The book of the Apocalypse is no exception. Um, in this book, analogies are often used, and there are many images that make reference to past events in the history of Israel. The book was written in a context when evangelization was taking place in Asia Minor, and at the same time, the Christians were beginning to break away from Judaism in the synagogue. And on the other hand, in Rome, Christianity was also being persecuted. So it's um, the book was written in a chaotic context, if you might call it that. And there was a lot of con- confusion. Um, Christianity was being distinguished from Judaism before it wasn't so clear. Um, and Christianity was being persecuted. And the book may be interpreted in different ways, given its symbolic value. It can be understood, of course, as speaking of a future time in the last days, as is, um, as is often interpreted. But at the same time, it can also be understood as more of a theological vision of the entire panorama of history. Um, like, sort of reveals to us in a theological way the meaning of the events that have been happening in the church at that time. Um, in fact, the word apocalypse, now when we talk about apocalypse, we think about destruction, um, the earth vanishing or the earth being destroyed buildings falling down, people dying. That's her vision of the apocalypse. But actually, the word apocalypsis in Greek means revelation. That's why the book of the apocalypse is often referred to as the book of revelation in most of the versions of the, of the Bible. Um, that it's not so much about disaster, but of revealing to us the theological meaning of history. And I'd like to highlight some of the essential elements that we find in the book, like some of the symbolic figures. Um, well, we have the figure of the Almighty, of course, which obviously refers to God. He's presented as the universal judge at the end of time and the Alpha and Omega of history, the beginning and end of history, because Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. And all things derive their being and find their fulfillment in the Almighty. 
And of course, we also have the figure of Christ, which is depicted in the image of a lamb. The book makes references to the sufferings of Christ, which is transformed into his being the Lord of Kings and Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Um, there's also reference to the Holy Spirit. Um, he's depicted as the one who speaks to the churches and the one who will join the bride in the coming of Christ. And here we also see reflected the image of the church, who is depicted as the bride of Christ who prepares for the coming of the Lord. And the church is depicted in the figure of a suffering woman, reminiscent of Isaiah's symbol for Israel as a woman in labor. And here in this book, we also find several angels who are constantly present. Um, they're seen as God's messengers and men's protectors. And they are beings who are standing at the four corners of the earth. So at that time, their image of the earth was that it was a flat surface. But, um, and so like angels standing at the four corners of the earth, meaning that the entire world was surrounded by angels. And it's also in this book where we find the narrative of how at the beginning, some of the angels rebelled. And so the archangel Michael defeated the devil. So we find this depiction of Michael, um, Michael's battle against the devil. And finally, a very important image in the book of Revelation, the book of the Apocalypse, is the Virgin Mary. Um, she's seen as incarnated in the figure of the woman, clothed with the sun, crowned with 12 stars. And Well, it's, this, this image of the woman clothed with the sun, crowned with 12 stars, is interpreted as Mary. It's also interpreted as, as a reference to the, to, the, to the Church of Christ, to the Church. Um, and in a way, her suffering, the suffering of Mary, is also the suffering of the Church. And in a way, we could say that, as we see in Lumen Gentium, the document of Vatican Council II on the, on the Catholic Church, which ends with the Virgin Mary, the Virgin Mary is the typos of the Church, or the model, the image of the Church, the model that the Church has to aspire to. And it's also this image of the woman clothed with the sun. It's also a reference to the woman spoken of in Genesis, who is going to crush the head of the serpent and through whom salvation will be brought back to humanity. So that's it for the writings of St. John. And today is a great day to ask for his intercession in order to be able to understand God better, to to love Christ better. In fact, the image of um, St. John, an animal that's often used to characterize St. John is the eagle because they say that only the eagle is capable of looking at the sun. All of us, when we look at the sun, we're blinded by the light, but the eagle is is able to do it. Um, And it sort of manifests his ability to penetrate through the theological depth of the being of the second person. And this ability is not some talent you develop, but it's something that's born out of love. And that's it. And in the next podcast, we'll be talking about the Pauline writings, writings of St. Paul.